One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire to look back on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Alva interviews the Labour leadership candidate, Rebecca Long-Bailey. And then you ask us, will there be a government of national unity? So, Jeremy Corbyn gave his last Prime Minister's questions, which... Although his leadership has yeah, a couple of days left to run, in many ways marks the kind of formal end of the Corbyn era. So as well as looking forward to this terrifying world in which we can't go out more than once and police drones are shaming people on Twitter for walking their dogs, I think we should look back on the Corbyn era. Anoush, you and I are you know, accelerating towards the grave at an alarming rate. <laughs> well, yeah, what are your feelings when you look back on... on on these five years that we've had? Wow, okay, that's a big question. I guess the person, and I know that I've I've angered many a New Statesman podcast listener and reader by saying this quite a few times over the years, the person that I blame the most for what happened to the Labour Party is not necessarily Jeremy Corbyn, but but Ed Miliband. <laughs> and I, st- I think I still think that when, when I look back on what's happened because of the way that he ran that campaign in 2015, which... No one was really expecting it, apart from you, of course, Stephen, when you wrote your Is Labour Losing piece just before the election. No one was expecting there to be a, a majority for David Cameron's Tory party in that in that election, really. And it was... It was Actually, I mean, I did also think that Nick Clegg would end up back in coalition with David Cameron, so... Yeah, I mean, it, no, no, but that is what a lot of people thought would happen, and, and indeed, that's what they thought would happen, potentially, as well. So it was really... <sighs> It was really Ed Miliband's, I think, his very poor leadership and his his weak campaign that kind of put Labour into this position, particularly as he was the the person when running for for leadership himself, who was criticising New Labour's record and sort of trying to turn a page on on that very successful period of, of the party's history. And that kind of opened the floodgates for even more, you know, even more of a big break from the past, which I think really paved the way for... Jeremy Corbyn's victory and what's happened with the party since, which is a sort of splintering, a official sort of rejection of its triumphant years and just all of this bitterness, which has in a way, strangely and ironically, led to a leadership election where, like we said on the previous podcast earlier this week, the overriding messages from the front runner has sounded, have sounded quite Miliband-esque. And that worries me in terms of the next election, whenever that may be. Um, I know that, that that answer doesn't say very much about Corbyn himself, but I think that's kind of the arc that the party's been on. And electorally, it's not a very promising one. 
It's not, I don't really know why I thought that, that question would cheer us all up. <laughs> but I did, and it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, it's odd because I guess the thing the, the thing I'm kind of struggling with when I look back over the, the five years, right, is that the 2019 general election was both, well, I mean, as we said on the podcast the week after it happened, was not, I think, a surprise to any of us in terms of what we were hearing out and about in the country. Not a surprise in terms of, you know, on the morning of September, whatever it was, 2015. The 2019 result was very much what, I expected would be the results of the 2020 election. So I guess I'm still more interested in the 2017 election, mm. simply because although in the run-up to the 2017 election, it became very clear that the election was not going to play out the way than, than we'd expected, I guess I'm still more interested in it purely because I feel aware that, I guess my my anxiety is that a number of us, I don't think that you were doing that just then, but a number of, of people have kind of essentially, because the 2019 election sort of delivered the result they expected, it's kind of like they can go like, oh, well, we don't really need to worry about like, because we basically have a situation where we've had two elections and at least one of them was clearly quite weird. And I realise I still don't know which one I think was the weirder election. It was, it's really difficult to know, isn't it? Because there was so much certainty after the 2017 election that we'd not not we as in us on this podcast necessarily, but, you know, some of the Corbyn sceptics who were the most vocal uh, were saying they'd underestimated Corbyn's ability and they were happy with the position that he'd got the party back into electorally and he'd inspired all of these young people reportedly to, to go out and vote for the Labour Party and he'd inspired all these new members to join, which he certainly did. And there was sort of this certainty there that actually, okay, maybe it's not so bad after all. And that's matched by the certainty after the 2019 election result that, oh God, it was actually awful and and we were right all along. And I just think that that kind of knee-jerk response to whatever the electorate delivers is quite dangerous because like you say, neither really tell us particularly what will happen next time. But of course, the the thing that both of those elections have in common is is that Labour lost and its coalition its disparate coalition is continuing to splinter and drift further away from each other. So I guess unless something really changes in terms of its offer to both of those groups, then I think they'll continue losing. Yeah, I mean, Alva, so you um, you kind of came in for the really bad bit right at the end. What mm-hmm. do you kind of, you know, what are your sort of feelings when you kind of look look back on the Corbyn era? It's, I mean, it's, I suppose it's difficult to distinguish what you think with your political analysis hat on and your own experience of it, because I began the Corbyn era at university at a very lefty college, and I remember the hope and promise of the early Corbyn days, but then since starting here, and also, you know, in the interim period, but especially, you know, being at, at the most recent Labour conference and observing up close all of the infighting and bitterness and and to be quite honest like all the anti-semitism right outside the conference center I think I kind of divide it into two things I mean I think that this sounds very twee and I feel like you like maybe the three of you wouldn't agree but I think that there have been some very positive things about the Corbyn project and lots of people will look back on on his leadership as as a as as proof that there is sort of appetite for a kind of moral socialism and and a really deep commitment to equality and a firm anti austerity message and people who are really sincere and unslick and that kind of thing and I think I think that 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 prevails it's just unfortunately 
wedded with this horrible feeling of bitterness within the Labour Party, really bad internal management, the scourge of anti-Semitism. And I, yeah, so I think that like that's the Corbyn legacy. There's the there's the positive side of the coin and the uglier side. Yeah, I, I would have to disagree with with one aspect of your analysis, which is that that this was an era unique, especially in Labour politics, in terms of as you put it, um, unslick and unslick operators who were, you know, sincere in in their um, moral worldview, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. John Prescott was unslick and sincere in his left wing politics. Mo Molan wasn't you know, by any means a, a polished conventional central casting media performer. Peter Shaw, for instance, you know, it's sort of, I guess maybe this, and, and Corbyn skeptics would say this is, this is part of the problem, right? I mean, there, and, and this is something that will dog the Labour Party forever. It will add a, a, another strand of um, a factional debate, which is the sort of, the sort of year zero in 2015 approach to analysis of, of, of Labour history is going to be something any future leader will have to reckon with. And Keir Starmer is about to find out that that is, that that is very difficult. And that also goes for key players on the, on the left of the party as well. You know, if you would say to, to Ian Lavery, you know, have you always been a Corbynite? Ian Lavery would say, absolutely, I was a Corbynite before the uh, term was uh, coined. He'd say, well, yes, Ian, you remember the campaign group in the 2010 Parliament, but you also nominated Andy Burnham for the leadership. It's really tricky, you know, not, not to, um, to pick on the other. Um, just, it just made me think about, how tricky it will be, and I suppose this is this you know history within political parties is is naturally contested along factional lines, but because this has been such a fundamental breach for so many people, it's going to be really really bitter, as you say. I think so. I guess I I broadly agree with what I would what one sort of close Corbyn ally once described as the necessary course correction that it represented. I think the problem I always have is I kind of think that. The Labour establishment or Labour's, you know, organised Corbyn sceptics, whatever you call them, very much deserved what happened to them in 2015. And then through failing to heed that message, deserved what happened to them in 2016. I just kind of regret that the rest of us had to live through it as well. You know, this kind of sort of like this incredible kind of we oppose the cuts, but we'll have to keep them. You know, this um, kind of inability to kind of go you know, to actually do what uh, every successful Labour leader done, which is like, you know, start with your values and win consent for them, rather than kind of sort of this sort of like weird, completely rootless uh, triangulation. And then the kind of arrogance and delusion that people lapsed into in terms of explaining the defeat and why it happened, yeah, the, the internal defeat and why it happened. And I think that, yeah, although I remain of the view that all three of the candidates to replace him have flaws, to put it mildly, I think that one of the ways that this, and I guess I also agree with Anoush, right, then, yeah, the central problem of, of Labour politics, which I guess hasn't gone away and has been made worse because of the rancour, is that, you know, the, the thing I'm finding most aggravating is all of these people who were wrong about Ed Miliband, but who, because they were eventually right about Jeremy Corbyn, are running around talking about how you win, despite having never been involved in a winning election campaign in their life, having failed to predict defeat in 2015, failed to predict a hung parliament in 2017, are kind of just like, ah, well, now I'm a winner. It's like when you see Ian Murray's campaign for the deputy leadership, no shade to Ian Murray, who has actually won. He has actually won something repeated times, which is um, the constituency of Edinburgh South, which he's won four times, um, and I'm um, good for him. But talking when you hit when you see someone like Ian Murray, okay, they're from that they're from that political tradition within the party that historically has done a lot of winning, you know, on a platform that was originally set out in 1994 and then adapted over the course of three elections over the succeeding decade. But to 
hear people like Ian Murray saying, we need to get back to winning. It's like, yes, but you haven't been doing very much of that at all, apart from in, you know the, the, your bit of Edinburgh ever. So what what do you mean? As, as, you, as you say, Steve, it's sort of, that sort of shtick is, is, is quite tedious. Yeah, I think they have to figure out a way if they want to carry on with what your profile, Patrick, you say is Keir Starmer's true principles, if they want to carry on campaigning on those principles, which are very similar to those of both Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, then they have to find a way of talking about poverty and talking about inequality that doesn't either switch people off or put people off. And actually, there's a lot of work being done. I won't go on about it, but there's a lot of work being done by anti-poverty and anti-inequality campaigners and academics into what kind of language makes those themes chime with the general public. And if the Labour Party would be open to listening to some of that research that's been done, then maybe there's a way of talking about these things and campaigning on these things that actually speaks to people in in a way that can make the party electorally successful again. So that's the interesting question for Keir Starmer, because something he doesn't have in common with Jeremy Corbyn, and indeed, to pick up on something, you just said a news put to pick up on something Alva said earlier, is that both have the tendency to speak in moral in moral absolutes you know jeremy corbyn you know his his aides used to joke that he, that he has one stump speech and I, I followed him on the road for a bit in the summer of 2018 and he, he gave it again and again and again which was sort of it's fundamentally a meditation on on good things um you know the nhs nye bevan uh, primary school in liverpool where every child gets their own musical instruments apparently that's his favorite piece of public policy ever and then bad things you know the tories the right-wing media etc etc uh, where, you know, Keir Starmer is obviously a better performer, I was going to say orator then, I wouldn't perhaps go that far, but he's, he's a much better speaker, he's a much more accomplished media performer, but he too speaks in the language of, mm. of moral absolutes, and whether that is, you know, as I write in the next issue of New Statesman, I mean, that is a, comes from a place of sincere conviction, but you do wonder actually whether Jeremy Corbyn has, has set down a marker um, that his successors will be compelled to meet that maybe though maybe that sort of language of of moral absolutes and um you know it is not the best way to talk about to talk about these things in 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 electoral sense it's quite depressing to to say that out loud but it's the consideration any political party certainly one fighting uh, from the left and hoping to win elections has to has to make i think that's such a good point anush that you make about all the research that is being done on how you communicate particular political messages well and it reminded me of of your piece that you did I, th- I can't even remember when it was but within the past few months about how people define wealth and what constitutes an mm. elite and about how actually because people see even quite extreme levels of wealth as within the realms of possibility for themselves and their own lives um they don't want to, to act too punitively towards people with much higher wealth. So, yeah, I, I thought that that report, I, I've, I've thought about it a lot. Um, it's really stuck with me. We should re-promote it on the NS website. But I thought that there were lots of takeaways there for how the Labour Party can move forward if it wants to convert more people to its worldview rather than, as you and Patrick were saying, a sort of a moralising speech that only speaks to the converted already that reports by Loughborough University so just in case anyone's not seen it it's it's really interesting but that's only in that report was only for um respondents in London and there is more research currently going on by the sort of heroic focus group organizers in this current climate for tax justice UK on the whole of the country and how that what their attitudes towards wealth is 
and and the respondents in these surveys and focus groups are all people of different different income groups so it's really interesting one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So Rebecca Longbailey, thank you very much for joining us on the New States of a Podcast today. It's a pleasure. So you're joining us from Salford, I gather? I am, yes. Obviously, these are different circumstances to be recording a podcast. We would normally have you know, had you into the studio to speak to all four of the people who normally do the podcast. And we would have been talking about your Labour leadership pitch. But with this crisis that we're in at the moment, it's a little bit different. And so I actually wanted to start by asking you about your perspective as an MP mainly, because I know sort of anecdotally that lots of MPs are finding being the point of contact for a lot of people in their constituencies very overwhelming at the moment. Like you're the person who hears about all of the difficulties that so many people in their community are facing. Whereas those of us who are stuck at home only hear secondhand from the news. So I was wondering, what's your experience of how people in Salford are, are responding to this so far? And what kind of problems are cropping up that you, that you see? Well, it's an incredibly worrying time for everyone across Salford and across the whole of the United Kingdom. No, none of us ever thought we'd ever be in a position like we are today. And, uh, and certainly as a constituency MP, I mean, we have been overwhelmed with, with queries and concerns and pleas for help from all sorts of different sources, really. So we'll start with, with the economic ones. So we've had a number of people contacting us who run small businesses and large businesses who haven't um, been sure of what support has been available to them. The government announced a business interruption loan scheme last week that was supposed to be fully operational by Monday, where businesses could go to their local bank and ask for temporary loans, if you like. But we've heard problems in the delivery of that and that many people are being turned away because the banks don't know enough about it yet. Or worse, the banks are actually asking for specific guarantees from particular businesses, which undermines the point of the scheme, in my view, given that the government's actually underwriting 80% of the cost of these loans. They're also, as I understand it, uh, intended to be on commercial terms. So although there's a 12-month interest-free period beyond that, I understand the rates of interest can be very different depending on what kind of business you are. And that's even if you're lucky enough to qualify for one of those loans in the first place. There are also a lot of businesses who can't afford to take on loans. So that's the the, the large part of the government support package. But when you're a small business and you're up to your eyes in debt and you don't know how long this uncertainty is going to last, you can't afford to take out a long-term bank loan. And I've been repeatedly calling, as have colleagues, for an extension in the government's grant system so that businesses can afford to, to have that temporary direct cash supply to tide them over to keep them going. Now, the other issue that we've had a lot of queries about is about which workers should go to work. 
And this is a point that makes me extremely angry because it is a matter of life or death. Now, the government outlined, Boris Johnson did his big um, press conference and announcement to the nation where he told us all to stay at home and only go out if we needed to go shopping or to care for a vulnerable relative. But then the government's guidance that sat alongside this stated that if you couldn't work from home, then essentially you had to go to work, unless you were in one of those exempted sectors such as retail or leisure, where they'd been ordered to close down. So we've had numerous reports of employees right across the constituency and across the whole country being forced to go to work in conditions where they're not two metres apart, in conditions where it's not an essential industry, not something that's vital to keep us going throughout this crisis. So again, myself and other colleagues have been repeatedly asking government to state very clearly what essential work is, because those workers are being put at risk now and we should be limiting the people who do leave their homes to try and stop the spread of this virus. So I'd like those employees at Sports Direct who were told that they should that their work somehow constituted essential work and they had to travel in and put themselves at exactly, risk. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's disgraceful. But that's just one example, unfortunately. I mean, we've seen on the news reports about construction sites mm-hmm. all up and down the country. We know that warehouses that don't deliver the essential items such as food and goods that you need in your house at this time, the more luxury goods like DIY things, wallpaper, clothing, those workers are being asked to go into those warehouses and continue business as usual. And they're not being given protection equipment and it's it's not acceptable in my view and it needs to stop. So ideally would you want to see an, an end to for example sort of non-essential construction at this time? Yeah no no work that is is not of a critical function at this time should be carried out and of course critical work has, has numerous forms if it's keeping us safe if it's our public services if it's food workers and supermarket workers and delivery drivers of course that's essential at this time but if it's mm-hmm. not an essential function those workers shouldn't be forced to go to work. Mm-hmm. And you've been quite clear I think from the beginning of this crisis about the kind of policies that you would want to see brought in you mentioned a universal basic income Mm -hmm. and earlier this week on Monday I think you mentioned how you'd like to see a national food service so um, we want the government to coordinate the delivery of sort of essential supplies and food delivered by Royal Mail and then the following day, Matt Hancock came out and announced this NHS volunteers programme, which I think just over half a million people have now signed up to. I was wondering, do you think that that sort of scheme is the right way of, of tackling the challenge of ensuring vulnerable people get supplies and that supermarket supply chains aren't overloaded, that sort of voluntary approach? I think the government needs to step up and coordinate and unfortunately what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of mutual aid groups which are fantastic it's communities coming together to provide support for people who are in need but the government doesn't appear to be providing much support to those groups so for example in Salford you know weeks ago we recognised that there was a huge issue and that many people across the city were going to need help getting medicine supplies they were going to need food to be delivered whether they were vulnerable or not and if they had to self-isolate they'd struggle to get out to shops so we built a bank of volunteers and we have hundreds of them and many of them have got dbs checks which is quite handy which means that they can help you know even driving care workers around who can't use public transport and things like that 
but the government did need to step up and you know now is not the time for recriminations and for raking over what they should and shouldn't have done we need to very very quickly now move towards having a national plan so that areas that don't have the level of organization that we've got in Salford don't get left behind and that's what I meant when I talked about the National Food Service so we know that people are really concerned when they go to the supermarket they're seeing bare shelves and uh, and people shouldn't panic buy but this goes way beyond panic buying and it goes right to the essence of whether people feel reassured enough that we have food security yeah and there there is new research i think today to suggest that actually the vast majority of people something like 95 percent, aren't really panic buying they're just they know that they can't go out to eat anymore and they're, they're trying to stay in for at least a week at a time. So they're doing bigger shops and just buying slightly more. So it isn't so much a a panic buying. It's just the, the change in the situation for people. Exactly, exactly. That's 100% right. And children are, be, are schooled at home and they're not having school dinners in schools. Mm. So there's definitely an extra pressure on the household uh, fridge at this time. And that's why the government does need to make sure that we have those vital food supplies in place and they can use the vacant leisure space that's been closed down. They can use the cinemas that, and, and the other public spaces that they're not using anymore as storage facilities. But in terms of delivering that food, we want to keep people in homes and we know that people who've tried to get online deliveries the supermarkets have been overwhelmed and they're not able to cope with the levels of demand so we've got to have additional support and that comes through using places such as Royal Mail. The trade union that sits alongside them, the CWU, has already talked to me about the National Food Service and about their members being willing to be involved in those essential food deliveries to people's homes and of course we can tie into the mutual aid groups as well where they have volunteers who've identified as, as people who are quite happy to deliver things. But basically, this would require government oversight, because I suppose, from a personal perspective, looking at how this volunteer service would work, most people haven't had their identities verified on that or anything. And so it's going to take a while to put into place. But it it does sort of depend on, I think, local people using their initiative a little bit. And maybe, I don't know, would you argue that you'd need a bit more government oversight to make sure that, that this is properly coordinated? Definitely. That's what should be happening. And and what we're seeing happen is that mutual aid groups are coming together in absence of that government direction. Mm. We're trying to sort things out ourselves and that shouldn't be the case. Of course, it's great to have brilliant people who are willing to do that, but there needs to be a level of national coordination to make sure that the food gets to these groups Mm. and these volunteers so that they can deliver it. And you're, you're spot on about making sure that the people who are going out to people's homes are okay that they've been checked that they're not posing any risk to people yeah more broadly we had lisa and andy on the podcast last week and so i'm going to ask you the same question i asked her you you've kind of already given a hint of it from your last answer and so on but if you were prime minister at the moment during this time of crisis what would your leadership look like well, unfortunately, I'm not Prime Minister uh, in this crisis. <laughs> and my my focus uh, at the moment has been to try and collaborate with the government as much as we can because we want them to get this right. And although it would be easy for me to, to go off on a rant about what they haven't done and how I've disagreed with their 
their strategy so far and I haven't been happy with the way that this has been handled at all. I think now is the time to make sure that the government does take that urgent action. So they take the the action on essential work that I set out before, Mm -hmm. that they make a clear package available to the self-employed today so that the self-employed aren't worried sick about whether they're going to be able to make it to next month or not, that they're making sure that the most vulnerable in society have enough money and enough uh, provisions to see them through this crisis, that they're making sure that the same support that they've afforded to those with mortgages is afforded to those who are renting so that they don't have to worry about making it through this crisis. And then looking at utility bills, I've repeatedly called for a moratorium on utility bills so that people people who are struggling due to coronavirus don't have to worry about whether they can afford to pay their water or electricity bill or not. So you're quite focused on sort of applying very specific policy pressure mm-hmm. at this time, which is interesting because I think that it's something that we talk about in the New Statesman newsroom and that I imagine that you're thinking a lot about as a party as well as a leadership campaign, this idea of trying to be a responsible opposition at the moment. What kinds of conversations or discussions have you had to think about how you get this right, that you don't do any sort of political point scoring, that you're a constructive opposition at the moment? Well, I think I've always I've always liked to think of myself as a pragmatic politician anyway. I've not been one for ranting. I do sometimes, obviously. But I think particularly at this time, we've got to recognise that we don't have a majority in Parliament, but we have so many vulnerable people within our communities who are really going to suffer. And the crisis itself has exposed the fundamental flaws that have been in our economy for many, many years. It's shown that it doesn't matter what your profession or job is, how much money you earn, you are fragile and you're one paycheck away from absolute destitution. And we've got to make sure that as an opposition, not only do we make sure that people have the security that they need in this crisis and that their safety is number one priority but it's when we come out of this crisis that we don't have an economy that sees anybody put in this position again and that means completely rebuilding the foundations of the economy it means the support that we afford to huge industries across the UK which is the right thing to do it comes with conditions Mm. conditions to pay and treat the workforce well to involve trade unions if we do hand out large sums of money we expect to see an equity stake so that money goes back to the public purse and can be used to to better the lives of people in our communities and it also means looking at alternatives to universal credit such as universal basic income so that whatever happens to anybody in their life they will have that fundamental basis to have a decent quality of life whatever happens so universal basic income is obviously quite a popular idea in some parts of the left and then it's quite politically divisive for other parts of society or for well, people elsewhere on the political spectrum that they just don't don't approve of that that level of state support basically how do you convince people that that's necessary do you think that that this crisis might shift the consensus on that a little bit is that what you're hoping for I think this crisis has shown very, very clearly how fragile everybody is and how difficult it is to move support at speed to make sure that people have enough to live on to sustain themselves going forward. 
And if this is a prolonged crisis, we know that the economy is going to take a huge hit. So it's not the case that as soon as we all go back to work, everything's going to be fine again. It won't be economically. And unfortunately, despite the government support that's been offered, and even if they do extend the support to the levels that we want them to, there will be businesses that go under. There will be people who lose their jobs and they are going to need to be looked after. And that's why we really do need to start ramping up the arguments, in my view, for a universal basic income. And the, I mean, the common argument is, is often that, you know, well, if there was a universal basic income, nobody would want to go to work. Yeah, and that's, that's not it, true basically. because yeah. we've got a social security system at the moment that, you know, it doesn't say, oh, well, if you can't be bothered going to work, don't go to work and you can have benefits. It's incredibly difficult to navigate your way through that social security system. And most people who aren't in work are absolutely destitute. Whereas a universal basic income would provide that kind of minimum income floor so that everyone would have the basics, they'd have enough to sustain themselves. And then if they were in work, of course, their employer would top that up. So there would still be incentives as there are now in the workplace to work hard, to do well, to want to earn more money. That Mm -hmm. certainly wouldn't change. It's just the way that our benefit system was structured would change to, to a more streamlined, easier method of delivery. So that's interesting because I think that sometimes this idea gets a bit confused and when people speak about universal basic income they have this idea that you could very happily live off that income and that then you could spend your time, maybe this has been completely misrepresented but I know people in France when this was being floated during the presidential election they had this idea that you know you'd have you'd have all the income that you needed and you'd be free to pursue creative not-for-profit projects and that the economy would be really radically structured differently with people not not incentivized to have to work anymore but just to pursue things that you know to, to pursue projects that that genuinely fulfill them but that isn't your argument well, that would be lovely if we could do that. But yeah, everybody needs, you know, if, if you can work, we need people to go to work. Otherwise, we won't have the things to do those nice things with. Somebody needs to make them. So uh, so we certainly need to have a world of work and, and the incentivization would be there. And I don't think there's there's many people across the country who wouldn't want to do well. They wouldn't want to work hard and do well a do useful things that contribute to society and make them feel good as a human being we all want to do that we all want to enjoy our jobs and two have a job that improves the quality of their life so they can aspire they can want to live in a nice house and have a car and go on holiday and and that doesn't you know it's not impeded at all by a universal basic income so it's more just really just a way of simplifying the benefit system and providing a very secure safety net for people exactly exactly provided that the amount that you have in that universal basic income is enough yeah. for, for people to actually exist and, and have a decent quality of life if i may i'd sort of moving away from coronavirus response and economic policy i just wanted to speak a little bit about the the labor leadership contest just because we're, we're coming to the end of it as you'll be aware, because it feels like it's gone on for quite a while. I um, <laughs> I was just wondering, so I get the impression from from some other interviews that, that you've done that you've maybe been a bit disappointed by the quality of the debate in the contest. Is that fair enough? 
It's not been very detailed. I mean, mm. I I get quite excited about policy detail and, and really getting into the depths of what each of the candidates believes in, because I think that's helpful for our members to understand where we're all coming from politically. And it's been good that we've had a good natured contest and that we all get on with each other. That's a good sign for the future, mm. I think. But that we really haven't been able to show the members how, how we differ politically and we do you know there are many things that we agree on but there are certainly many things that I think we would disagree on well that's what I wanted to ask you um what would you have liked to talk more about if you'd had the chance I think economic policy, because everything goes down to the way we structure our economy and the way we structure our economy. It's not enough to say, well, oh, of course, you know, we want everybody to be better off and to have a nice life. We've got to talk about how we deliver that and the way we deliver that could differ in many ways. And that would shine a light on our political outlook. So I'm, you know, we already know I'm a strong advocate of universal basic income. I very strongly favour public ownership of key utilities in order to use that as a vehicle for food further investment in the economy, but also to to ensure that that public nature of that organisation can be used to, to go back to the community and to invest in people. I also believe very strongly in a green a new deal a green industrial revolution and i don't think it's enough to simply tinker around the edges i think you need a fundamental and comprehensive program that many people politically might not agree with you know into when mm. i when i talk about taking uh, the energy network companies into public ownership for example many on the left wouldn't agree with that but i think that that was a necessary thing to do in order to drive forward the change that we needed to see as quickly as possible so you would have liked to dive into the weeds of those of those policies a bit more and I feel like what you're implying is that you would have liked journalists to push Lisa and Andy and Keir Starmer more on questions like public ownership to see where the three of you differ a bit more. I think that, yeah, it certainly would have been helpful because the people's perceptions of public ownership differ and, you know, talking about common ownership, if that's just, you know a few kind of nice community initiatives to put solar panels on roofs. That's not my view of public ownership, which is more large scale (laughs) and has more of an industrial driving presence in the economy. Okay, I see. Also, sort of on that, a lot of our listeners are are very politically engaged. A lot of them are Labour Party members and lots of others are Labour Party supporters. So they, lots of them will have already voted in the contest or will be saving their vote. But I think lots of people have already cast theirs by now, probably. I was wondering, I think there might be some people looking at the contest who think, well, I share a lot of Rebecca Long-Bailey's socialist values, but there's been a lot of infighting in the Labour Party over the past few years and they associate that with Jeremy Corbyn and they think, I don't think she's the candidate for me because I want an end to the infighting and I don't think that she's the person to deliver that. What's your message for for those kinds of people? Because I think there could be people like that in our in our listenership and in our readership. I mean, I think most Labour Party members have been um, going through what I can only describe as a grieving process over the last few months since the general election. And on election night, it was as if everything that we believed in and we'd worked towards was invalidated in one felt swoop. We were told we can't really have that because people don't want it. And people questioned whether they needed to change, whether they should believe in these things. And and why I stood was because I was trying to tell them very clearly that 
it wasn't what we believed in that was wrong. Yes, there was a lot we got wrong in that election campaign all the way through from the way we handled Brexit through to many of the issues that had lost trust with our voters. Um, we didn't have a campaign that had a, an overarching message that resonated with people in the way that the Conservatives did and certainly the way we packaged our campaign bringing out numerous policies instead of just concentrating on the key ones and, and marketing them in the best way possible wasn't helpful. But on the question of unity, for nearly five years, we were a disunited party and we can't go through that again. And anybody in the party who thinks that to let one element of the party take over will see this go away is very naive we have to move forward now and we've got to recognise that the only way we're ever going to win a general election is by bringing all the different elements of the party together. And it's actually really positive to have different groups within the party. It's not positive to fight each other. It's not positive to have MPs or members saying things publicly to the media about the elected leader of the party or indeed each other. It undermines everything we're trying to do. But if we can have those policy discussions in private... And then once we've agreed those positions, then we'll come out stronger and we all should unify behind the leader. And that's certainly what I'll do. If I don't win this leadership contest, whoever wins, I might not agree with them all of the time. And I might tell them that privately. But as far as the general public's concerned, I'll be behind them 101%. And that's what every single Labour Party member generally does. So you would commit to keeping those, those differences and those policy debates private? Definitely. And I think it's healthy to have those debates, but not to do it publicly, because mm -hmm. we've seen how destructive that's been. Because why would anybody vote for a party where the MPs in that party won't even support the elected leader? It's absurd. It's been striking, I think, watching it as a political journalist over the past few weeks. I feel like the Labour Party's response to coronavirus has been very slick and very well coordinated in that I think you've you've broadly spoken as one voice on the need to improve sick, sick pay. You've been putting pressure on with regards to the measures for the self-employed that will be coming out later today at the point of recording. And Lisa and Andy mentioned on the podcast last week that there had been a sort of discussion with Jeremy Corbyn and you and Keir Starmer and John McDonnell and her to think about how you could do this constructively. And mm -hmm. it seems to be working. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think it's fair to say that the Labour Party is more united as a result of having to come together for this crisis, than it, more united than it's been for, for a long time? Definitely, because we know that the lives of our constituents are at stake and, and any Labour MP would move heaven and earth to make sure that people they represent are looked after and that they're safe. But I also think that there's been a really good level of collaboration across the party on this issue. And we've all been working very productively with each other. And even prior to, to this crisis, I think a lot of members and even our, our own MPs took heart in the way that the leadership campaign was being conducted because the candidates have generally been very nice to each other and very cooperative and it, it set out very firm foundations for the future, whoever wins this really. And, and long may it continue. Fingers crossed that it will. That's a good note to end on. I just have one final question. So last week, when I was speaking to Lisa and Andy, I asked just by asking her how her family is doing. 
And those of us who've been following the Labour Leadership Contest closely know that you refer to your four-year-old son as the king. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was just wondering, how's the king doing and, and how are your family coping with, with this strange time? Yeah, the king's fine. He's, he's gone through like that, the novel period now because this is day, what day are we on? Thursday. So this is day four of homeschooling. So it's all really mm-hmm. exciting for him. So we've been getting up at nine, getting up and doing the nine o'clock Joe Wicks PE lesson. Oh, you've been doing every day. it? Oh, very yeah. good. It's, it's really good. It's quite tiring though for the grown-ups. And then we've been trying to figure out his lessons and me and the husband have been doing shifts, you know, mm-hmm. do a bit of work and then the other one's doing the lessons. So we're all doing all right so far. Okay, great. Rebecca Longbilly, thank you very much for joining us on the New States Thanks podcast. Thanks a lot. You look thank after yourself. it's time for a section we like to call you ask us you ask us (laughs) (laughs) the question of the hour is i'm scrolling furiously up through the long list of questions is i guess broadly god there are so many on this theme but essentially the the broad question is you know unity government what's that about a can i read um one of them out because i thought it was asked in a very good way this is a question from rishi brackets, not Sunak. Why do people think there might be a national unity government when the Tories have a pretty substantial majority? Well, it's a really a, a, good, a good place to start. Obviously, this is a conversation that's been had with varying degrees of seriousness among Tory MPs in private. But for an indication of whether it's going to happen, and obviously I caveat this um, preemptively by saying we're very early in this crisis, we don't know where it's going to end up. We don't know what Keir Starmer is going to say to a an impatient public via Zoom on the uh, on the fourth of April. But for a mark of sort of where I think how serious I think this discussion is, how likely it's going to happen, I think it's quite telling that the only Conservative MP uh, to have gone on the record about this, and and maybe Stephen actually you'll have had conversations with, uh, well you've had conversations with cabinet ministers about this very idea. But I I just sort of think any idea that starts life as a kite flown by George Freeman the self-regarding sort of intellectual of the uh, of the Tories MP from Mid-Norfolk, hosts the um, so-called Tory Glastonbury, the Big Tent Ideas Festival. Great guy, but uh, by all accounts, bit, um, has a reputation as a bit of a sort of um, chin-scratching eccentric among some of his colleagues. So I'd, I sort of read, oh, wow, a, Tor- a Tory MP and a former minister has gone on the record to talk about government national unity. You scroll down to the sixth part of the Guardian story and you see George Freeman. Mm, okay. But I think it's certainly been talked. It's been talked about among colleagues. But yeah, maybe when Keir Starmer is deputy prime minister in four weeks' time, I'll regret this segment. But I, I am quite bearish on it. Well, I guess so. On the specific historical point about the size of the majority, right? The government's majority is smaller than the Conservative majority in 1940 when they went into coalition with the Labour Party. It's obviously considerably bigger than in the Liberal majority in 1916, when they went into coalition with the Conservatives primarily, but also some Labour MPs and also some Liberal MPs were involved in the coalition in, in 1940. I would broadly agree with Patrick that up until the point that the people talking about it on the record are figures in the heart of the party, then it becomes a bit abstract. But it, it, it's all basically right. The reason why people are talking about it is this might go on for a very long time and the measures 
maybe very unpopular slash in order for MPs who are worried about the civil liberties implications on the Tory side to feel relaxed about it, they feel that you need to bake in from the very beginning the idea that when you do things like what we are currently embarked upon, you don't do them with one party alone. Yeah, and also you'd you, one would much rather Keir Starmer, a very effective opposition politician, and also a guy that believes very sincerely in uh, in civil liberties and and has spent his entire career thinking very deeply about the legislative framework for and the deeper moral questions around interactions between institutions of the state that exercise power, i.e. most notably the police. He spent much of his early days as a barrister. God, I'm going to get so much... Um, so much content out of this profile on this on this on this uh, on this podcast, but you know, uh, acting against the police and thinking deeply about questions of of state power, and also who we know is a very effective forensic, loyally, if you will, opposition politician at the dispatch box. Um, as much as some very online people on the soft left think he has been sluggish and not out there enough with his response to this thing, if you're a Tory, there's a reason, as you say, Stephen, that people are talking about this, and. If you can put it a little bit more bluntly, it's like, would you rather Keir Starmer at the dispatch box opposite you or with his hands on the tiller with with Boris Johnson? I think any sensible Tory would pick the latter. Yeah, I have to admit, I've not had many conversations about this because I've been working on different stories. But that was my that was my big question about this idea is surely, first of all, what's the mechanism for doing it? Would it have to be, you know, Boris Johnson as an individual reaching his hand out? towards Keir Starmer or is there some kind of way that parliament can vote for a national government how does it work and second of all surely if it reaches the point where they want to sort of have Labour's fingerprint on their coronavirus response does that mean that they've lost confidence in in the in their response or does it mean that they're worried about the the trust that the government that the trust that the public has in their response or the pop their popularity begins falling so they think okay we've got to implicate the opposition in this too because I, I think i guess one of the reasons why you know since i uh first spoke to people about it i think the chances of it have gone down isn't the the argument about how it would happen is yeah you basically have doris johnson does a kind of Oh God, I can't remember where David Cameron made his big open and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats from. But, you know, when he basically went on air and went, I'm making a big offer to the Liberal Democrats, Mm. essentially Boris Johnson would do something like that. But I think one of the reasons why that's become so unlikely now, and I just want to stress test this with with everyone here, is that I think the government has, has got itself into a real mess in making it seem like this will be a thing that will go away quickly for sure. And then it's now just so painful for them to turn around and go, by the way, we now think this might go on for several years, therefore we mm. would like... I, I basically would take the view that if you can't write the speech in which someone would deliver and look at it and go, yeah, that's a plausible speech, then it probably won't happen. And I, I can no longer conceive of a moment in which Boris Johnson can stand up and go, I know I somehow allowed myself to say 12 weeks, but maybe it'll be more <laughs> like two years. I just don't see how that moment can happen in a way that is not politically so destructive and it won't happen. But I, I'm intrigued with others think. I totally agree with that, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I agree. I had a, yeah. a slightly grim thought the other day that I think we might well look back or history might look back on Boris Johnson's throwaway 12-week comment as one of those horrible phrases, like as similar to one of those terrible phrases at the beginning of the First World War about 
you know, you'll be home before the leaves are falling from the trees or you'll be home for Christmas. I, I think it was such a, from a political perspective, just such an error to put a time frame on it when he really can't deliver that. Also, he, he, he expectantly, that sort of viral FT story that was um, doing the rounds yesterday about sort of, ha- have we all had coronavirus already about that Oxford University study? Listening to him at the, uh, it was at the press conference yesterday, him saying to um, to Patrick Valence, hey, what about this story that says half of, half of everybody's got it already? He said sort of expectantly, hmm. almost expecting him to say, oh yeah, no, no, we have, it's fine. Every, everything's back to normal now, uh, Boris. Um, to read the Times leader comparing him to Neville Chamberlain, if the consensus grows in the Conservative Party that the government, uh, which it is, which the government isn't listening, uh, Johnson hasn't been clar- um, communicating with sufficient clarity, decisions have been taken too slowly. If Keir Starmer does say, yes, I'm up for a national government, surely there's a, there's an argument that he might he might be the one to impose conditions, not not the Conservative Party. He might say, yes, I'll be I'll be Rishi Sunak's deputy prime minister, or yes, I will, mm. um, you know, I will prop up Rishi Sunak. But and I think there might, you know, as this if this continues for for much longer, and, and Boris Johnson is seen to have made misjudgments with um, very grave consequences, then actually the the power dynamic could could shift there. I think perhaps. Yeah, I I agree. I, that bit in the pre- press conference was bizarre, wasn't it? It was sort of like, yeah, tell me it's going to be fine. <laughs> it, it wasn't very much like I read this in the paper or someone sent me this on WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, I know it's really strange. It's like you're the prime minister, but I I do think because because at the moment he's he's got better approval ratings than than before. But like you say, I think once that twelve weeks and it's such a seductive thing, isn't it? Like in my head psychologically I think this is going to be over in 12 weeks because Boris Johnson said it which is ridiculous because I'm a journalist who who has been covering Boris Johnson's leadership for some time and his measures that he put in place in previous positions but um, I think when it becomes clear that that was just him projecting his optimism onto the nation I think that that his his approval ratings could slip quite quickly. Yeah I think it's just like well as Alva says right it's just like don't make promises you not only that you can't keep, but that you, if you have to break them, what is your justification for breaking it? Your mm. justification for breaking it is, I'm, I said this thing, it was witless and I shouldn't have said it. I mean, I do also think, yeah, now this is the kind of thing where I basically, I'm going to slightly cheat here and blame the government twice. And then I think it is partially, of course, the, the questions that were being asked pushed him in that direction. But the mm. government has chosen to treat covid like it's fighting the labor party i don't mean as in how they're acting towards the labor party but you know like the evening briefings the stuff to sympathetic journalists it's just like guys this isn't about like you know <laughs> you, you 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 don't need to draw dividing lines with covid so you can like have them pay off at the election like you you just need to be to lay out plainly what the challenges are and and that does encourage journalists to ask questions that call for an unhelpful level of certainty and i do now think you know these tests which are, are being presented as if they will mean we can all, you know, feel the sun on our, our skin, the twelve week limit. I just I just I just think it's a catastrophic mistake. So yeah, no, I think Albert's point about World War One is, is very well made. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Alva Ray, and Patrick Maguire. If you want to ask a question for You Ask Us, we now have a contact form, which we'll be tweeting out. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Music.